Wisconsin's true home team is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Now featuring savings up to $2,500 off an installed patio door, up to $3,000 off an installed entry door, but only through May 31st. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the program. A lot of ground to cover on today's program. We are going to, of course... Like every talk show in the country today, we're going to talk about the aftermath of what happened in Texas two days ago. But just from a programming perspective, we're going to address things like that starting in the one o'clock hour of the program. We spent a lot of time on yesterday's show, and there's some other things I want to talk about. So we will be discussing various aspects of of the shooting, and a lot of the usual suspects are all out with all sorts of different ideas. And I, I've got some thoughts as well, but we're going to save that for the start of the one o'clock hour. Hey, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Lots and lots of postings about a, a number of things for example um fox six yesterday had this had a feature about again one of america's most wanted at least one of wisconsin's most wanted guy who's a fugitive i talked about this case a couple of weeks ago and and they did a a pretty very very interesting piece and i've got a link to that but it's one of these things that highlights for example when you had the waukesha christmas parade massacre you had the guy in the car that killed six people and injured dozens and dozens of dozens and it turns out that he was on some stupid low bail and the explanation the da's office had is oh this is one to just slip through the cracks what i was telling you then was no that th- that's that's not the issue it's not a guy who slipped through the cracks it's part of this system that for years has been turning dangerously dangerous people loose on ridiculously low bails and this is another one of those situations a guy who should have never been out on bail in the first place who jumped bail on multiple occasions and was still turned loose on more bail is now in the wind wanted for murder it's an absolute outrage if you want to have a link to the story again you can follow me on twitter it's at jeff wagner 620. And I've got a link to the story that Jane Matinair was just talking about. Ray Liotta, the actor who he did a lot of stuff, but the, the truth of the matter is there's there's two movies that he appeared in that, that cement his legacy. Um, he was if you remember the Kevin Costner movie Field of Dreams, he played uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson in Field of Dreams. And then not that long after doing Field of Dreams, he went on and it, the, the, the tour de force, I, I think one of the <clears throat> best mobster movies ever made, if not the best mo- mobster movie ever made, and I know there's The Godfather and other things like that, but he played Henry Hill in the movie Goodfellas. So he, he did a lot of movies and his career had ups and downs and things like that. But Field of Dreams and, of course, you know Henry Hill and Goodfellas, he passed away um, surprisingly in his dream, in his sleep at uh, 67 years old while he was on a movie set. So if you want to have a link to read that story, um, I've got that up on my Twitter account as well. You can follow me at Jeff Wagner 620 But um, again, no matter how many movies he made, Ray Liotta will always be remembered for both portraying Shoeless Joe Jackson in Field of Dreams and, of course, mobster Henry Hill in Goodfellas, which, <clears throat> you know, if you're if you're an actor, that's, that's not a bad legacy to leave. And we certainly... Um, Send our condolences to the family and encourage him to rest in peace. All right. I want to tell you about something that happened last night. 
get your reaction. We um one of one of our, our grandchildren, my wife's grandkids, um was involved in a, a concert out in, in Pewaukee. You know, and I've I've talked about this before. I, I'm by the way, I'm always amazed now with with grandkids and stuff in my life. You know, a couple of our grandkids go to Sussex Hamilton, a couple go to Pewaukee, and and so you know, even they're in they're in some of the arts things and they're in choirs and things like that. I am always amazed when we attend these things, and I, I admit I always kind of go in thinking, oh, okay, it's it's a Wednesday night, and the last thing I want to do is drive out there and watch the show, and I, so I'm always dreading it a little bit and I always walk away thinking my gosh what a great performance and that was certainly the experience I had last night it was uh Pewaukee their their season ending like pops concert for all the different kids that participated in all the different choirs it was a great show it was incredibly well choreographed and really talented kids and entertaining musical so it's, it's great so it ends I don't know. We get out of there about nine o'clock last night. So we're, we're driving back and I live, you know, in Ozaki County. So as we're, we're driving, we, we would 94 and then go through downtown and go north on 43. Well, it was a crummy night last night, you know, pouring rain and the pavements were wet and it's kind of hard to see and all that sort of stuff. So anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm driving along and then we're on 43 going north. And all of a sudden I start to see these signs saying free, full freeway closure. Uh, not the kind of thing that, that you want to see. And as it turns out, right around 7.30 last night, somebody not that far from where I'm sitting now, right around Capitol Drive, apparently a motorist hit a deer. And so that was around 7.30. So the, the freeway, I don't know when they ultimately reopened it, but it was certainly closed when we were trying to come through at 9 o'clock. So all the cars were being diverted off on on Keefe, but before that, I, I saw what was going on, and I was able to get off on Locust. So what you want to do is figure out, okay, how, how can we get back on the freeway, past the freeway closure? And I didn't know it was because a motor was hit a deer. I found that out later. So we, we get off on Keefe, and we start heading north along with all sorts of other cars. You know, everybody's you know getting off, and you're, you're, you're heading north on 3rd Street. And again, it's, it's not particularly well lit. And it's hard to see because it's it's wet and it's raining. It's just it's just a miserable night, and you're kind of inching your way north. The thing that really struck me as we are doing that is how appalling the roads are. And, and I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm talking about loose manhole covers. I'm talking about potholes that would you know swallow you know relatively large children. I, I'm talking about just um, uh, streets that are just incredibly bumpy and curvy. And just, I was stunned by the incredibly poor condition of of the roads. And this was pretty much all the way as we were driving north. And again, we were pr- principally on 3rd Street, all the way as we were driving north from about Keefe up to Capitol. And then that becomes kind of like Green Bay Avenue. And it gets, it. it but it was just, it was incredibly awful to the point that, you know, I, I know that there are these huge potholes and I'm watching the cars in front of me and they're hitting these potholes and they're banging on things. It was just I was really struck by how lousy the roads were. And I was talking about this to a couple people who drive streets in Milwaukee on a regular basis. And I know on this program, a lot of times we talk about, you know, taking your life into your hands because, again, you never know when somebody's going to go through a red light at 90 miles an hour or, or whatever. But this this wasn't this wasn't that. This was just awful road conditions made worse because 
because of a lack of street lights and again the weather conditions so it was almost impossible to see the giant potholes that you were hitting now i got lucky i saw a couple of them i saw the car in front of me for example at one spot i saw it just banged and i thought oh there's a big pothole so i was able to really pay attention and avoid it but i was really struck by the fact that yeah i can't believe People drive these roads every day, and people put up with driving these roads every day because, to me, they're, they're a flat tire. They're an alignment thing waiting to happen, and I'm not on that stretch of roadway very often. But I was telling the story to a couple people who do drive around a lot of the roads in the city, and they're saying, Jeff, this is nothing unusual. It doesn't matter where you go. The roads are uniformly terrible. I'm not talking about dangerous because of the drivers. I'm just talking about road condition. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Have you noticed that? Because, again, I was just struck by how badly the roads are being maintained. Amazing. 855-616-1620. Are, are you noticing that? Have you had that experience? Because I'm, I'm thinking, man, I can't imagine how people drive this stuff on a daily basis and what it must be doing to cars. 855-616-1620. We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I was really struck by having driven some city streets yesterday after I got diverted off the freeway. How terrible they, they really are. And it is interesting. Somebody texts and says, well, are you suggesting they take money from the suburbs to improve infrastructure in the city? Well, I, I, I'm suggesting that maybe you could take some of that COVID money or maybe instead of talking about spending, I don't know, tens of millions of dollars to expand the trolley that nobody's riding, maybe you could put it into repairing the roads. I'm just amazed that people put up with the condition that the roads were in. You know, 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, isn't that why I pay an extra $25 on my stickered car to have those roads replaced? Well, don't know about it, not seeing a lot. Jeff, welcome to Milwaukee. I drive around the city in the north side all week. It baffles me that um, I have not, that it baffles me that I have not snapped an axle on my work truck. Um, Jeff, try driving 92nd Street between Good Hope and Brown Deer Road. I can't even do the speed limit because my truck would lose control. Um, Jeff, last year, bike lanes were installed, but potholes were not fixed. <laughs> I would not ride a bike in that area. You know, no. So you've got that point that's there. Jeff, uh, fixing the roads would be a practical way to use COVID money instead of wasting it frivolously. Well, I, I just, again, I, I was just stunned at how bad, how bad the roads were. And it, it wasn't just like, a bad block. I mean, you, you understand that sometimes it deteriorates. I am talking about from when we got off, we were forced off the freeway at Locust, all the way up, you know, past Capitol Drive, all, all the way where it becomes Green Bay Avenue. You're talking about miles and miles of roads, which are barely, at least in my opinion, barely drivable. And when you're trying to drive them at night where you can't see the potholes to navigate around or the gaps in the street. I mean, I just I don't understand how people put up with this. I don't understand how elected officials put up with this, because I'm telling you, it was and I'm not talking about safety issues. I'm not talking about crime. I'm not talking about being worried about people running through red lights. I'm just talking about the basic conditions of the roads. Let's talk to Tom. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Jeff. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Well, yeah, if you, if somebody takes the initiative and calls the city of Milwaukee and says, I want to report a pothole, they will take the location down. They will give you a confirmation number, and they will act promptly. Well, okay, Tom. Nobody makes a call. Nothing gets done. Well, well, Tom. Well, let me, Tom. Thanks, but let me put it like this: If if nobody in the city of Milwaukee understands the truly crappy condition of the road, at least the one I drove, and my guess is it does not get better as you get closer to downtown. I am not talking about a pothole. I am talking about however many miles it is from Keith Avenue up 3rd Street past Capitol Drive. It's not, hey, there's a pothole in this one particular block. I am talking about roads that are barely, barely passable. And if you're trying to drive them at night when it's raining and you can't see the potholes, it, it is even worse. And I guess I, I see if if people aren't calling that in and saying, do you understand these roads are really in crappy condition, almost unpassable? If people aren't calling that in, I, I don't know what to say, but I also don't think that that is an uncommon experience anywhere in, in the city, which makes me wonder why it is that people are putting up with this. Um, yes, they are not doing a very good job of that. And, um, yeah. and, and I guess I, I'm just I was struck by this. And again, I, I, I was wondering if my experience was different driving what I was driving last night. So that's why I made a point today of talking to folks who drive other routes around the city. And I said, was, you know, is, was it all as bad as where I was driving? And the general consensus was, yeah, it, it's terrible all over, which, again, I, I understand that we've got all sorts of issues that are out there and we talk about crime and things like that all the time. But from a basic quality of life standpoint, if you have these roads that are in just incredibly terrible shape at some point in time isn't there public pressure to say let's let's get this stuff fixed up a a little bit i can't imagine i mean i got to tell you if you want to my guess would be if you want to try to find a business that is thriving around here or an area that you were looking to start at i you know i got to imagine body shops and places that do alignment and places that fix tires and all things like that because driving some of these roads on a regular basis I gotta believe. Wow! I mean, it, I, you gotta be in for alignment all the time. Back with more in just a minute. Jeff, like you, we were driving home last night to find the freeway closed. Like you, I exited at Locust. I agree. Roads are atrocious. I can't believe the city of Milwaukee collects all the taxes they do, but the roads are so crummy, especially on the north side. I would imagine it is totally unacceptable. Jeff, I think uh, people who live in Milwaukee put up with it because more than likely they don't know how to actually address city officials. Most likely they don't even know their aldermen. Don't know about that, but man, if if I lived in that area, my alderman would be getting regular contacts from me. Uh, Jeff, worst of all, politicians claim that they'll fix roads if you vote for them. 
Well, okay. They're, they're, let me put it like this. If that's the claim, there is room for improvement. Jeff, I think the roads in the Milwaukee area in general are despicable, including the interstate. That's one of the reasons why I drive a junky car. Jeff, I agree with the previous callers and texters about the crummy job at road repairs. Bradley near 91st Street was finally repaired, but they just put a layer of asphalt over the broken road. Didn't last for more than a couple years before the potholes came back yeah so that's the um thing um jeff with our roads in this condition that they are how can they say we have a budget surplus in wisconsin well i'm just saying that when when you look at different ways that you can spend money and things that affect people's direct quality of life i would say fixing the roads would be a big one and i, I guess i just did not realize until I was driving a portion of the streets of Milwaukee last night that I typically don't drive, how awful the roads really are. Waterstone Bank and WTMJ have once again partnered to recognize the heroes in our local community. Please join WTMJ Steve Scafidi all week as he honors police officers, firefighters, health care providers, and countless others who work every day to protect our families. This week, Steve recognizes five fearless individuals during Hero Week. Tune in every day during the 11 o'clock hour to hear from one of our winners. It's Waterstone Bank's Salute to Service on WTMJ. Yeah, check that out. It's a wonderful feature. Um, again, if you follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Wagner 620 I admit I kind of went on a Twitter storm over the last day or two because, at least since we last spoke, because there's a lot of stuff going on that's caught my attention, I- including one of the things I've always believed in is and, and said is that just because you might have a right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And And there's a classic story about this. Now, can I see a show of hands? Who remembers the old Winnie the Pooh stories? You know, maybe, maybe when you were a kid, you know, you, you were, your, your mom or dad read you the Winnie the Pooh stories, you know, and Christopher Robbins and all that, and maybe you read them to your kids, or maybe you read them to your grandkids. I mean, Winnie the Pooh stories are just, I mean, classic, classic, you know, entertainment. Well, what happens is, without getting too far into the weeds when it comes to, like, legal issues, um, copyrights, copyrights only last so long, and then they do what's called lapse, and the the story, for example, goes into what they call the public domain. If you will remember a number of years ago, the movie It's a Wonderful Life, the copyright on that lapsed. And what happened is the movie went into the public domain, which meant that TV stations all across the country could show it without having to pay rights fees. And that's why there was a period it seemed like every time you turned on the television, you saw It's a Wonderful Life. You saw it on commercial TV stations. You saw it on public TV stations. You saw it all over because they could show it. They could sell commercial time if they felt like it, and they didn't have to pay rights fees. Now, there, there's provisions where the stories, where they can go back into copyright. And again, I don't want to get too far in the weeds with that. But if you were wondering why years ago you used to see It's a Wonderful Life all the time, it's because it had gone out of copyright and into public domain. Well, some of the original stories, some of the very first Winnie the Pooh stories, and they were written by A.A. A. Milne, you know, Christopher Robin and, uh, you know, the, the forest and things like that. Um, some of the original stories lapsed into the public domain a couple months ago, which means that as long as you're doing something with those stories, you, you don't have to pay rights fees or anything like that. So 
there are a series of productions that are underway now. And I know you're, you might not want to believe me on this, but I've, again, I've got a link if you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Wagner 620. There is a filmmaker in Britain who has taken a couple of the original Winnie the Pooh stories that have lapsed into the public domain, and he's making a slasher film out of them. I, I, I cannot make this up. Winnie the Pooh, I'm now reading from the story that I've linked to, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, wrapped earlier this month, and the first stills from the movie show a demonic Pooh and Piglet about to pounce on a scantily clad young woman relaxing in a hot tub. So uh, the, the bottom line is they take one of the original Winnie the Pooh stories and decide to bring it to the screen. The, the plot is essentially Christopher Robbins has gone off to college. He's left Pooh. He's left Piglet. And, and they become psychotic killers. And there's, there, I'm looking at some of the pictures of this. And it's just you, you kind of shake your head about this. Now, part of the thing is these guys, the, the filmmakers are going to get sued because even though these stories have lapsed into public domain, Walt Disney owns the rights to the, the, the characters and stuff. So it's going to be an interesting point of copyright law as to you know how far you can go with this. So I suspect that there's going to be lawsuits. But my take on this was, you know, really? Just because you have a right to do something, you know, you're going to take this beloved kid's book and you're going to turn it into an R or, you know, X-rated slasher movie. Uh, my, take, my take on it is it's a movie that doesn't need to be made. Just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And more importantly, it certainly doesn't need to be seen by anyone. And my hope is if this thing ever comes out, hopefully people will vote with their wallets and they will ignore it completely. Winnie the Pooh turned into an R-rated slasher movie. Give me a break. All right, when we come back, again, heads getting ready to explode. I will explain and we will discuss. Okay. Now, we, we all know that in 2020... Milwaukee was selected to be the host for the Democratic National Convention, and everybody was thrilled for for that. You had the the predominantly Democratic city of Milwaukee, who was thrilled because, hey, it's going to be bringing in a lot of money into the city, and we're going to have all these people that we actually love coming into the city. Well, because of COVID, that didn't happen. Milwaukee is one of two finalists for the 2024 Republican National Convention. Now, you're already seeing that there's a lot of like liberal activist groups who, including some unions, who are, are betraying their memberships and sending notes saying, we don't want the RNC here because we don't like those evil Republicans. They're all white supremacists and they want to kill people with guns and all this stuff. So we, we don't want them, them them here. So that's the, the political attitude. And unfortunately, that's the political attitude that a lot of people in the Common Council have. Then there's the common sense approach to it, which says, hey, if you have the Republican National Convention here, what's going to happen is you're going to have 50,000-plus people that are going to be coming into the city, and they'll be exposed to the city. They will be bringing money. The estimated impact is about they say it's $200 million. Now, some people say that that's a little bit overblown. I, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But you're going to have 50-plus thousand people. 
And other than people also, journalists and stuff from all over the world coming into Milwaukee, they're going to be staying at hotels, they're going to be patronizing restaurants, they're going to be renting cars, they're going to be uh, going to um, different areas and entertainment venues around here. It, it is a huge influx. Getting a convention that's going to bring 50,000 people to a city is a big deal. It's one of the reasons I, I thought that we're spending all this money expanding the Wisconsin Center because we want to go for bigger conventions. Now, that that's including many that aren't going to be bringing 50,000 people here. So that no matter how you cut it, it's a huge economic boost to the city, except you have some idiots. Yes, I'm using that word intentionally. Idiots on the Common Council, who are are politically wrapped up in this, they don't like Republicans. Oh, you know, the Republicans haven't treated us well over the last 12 years. You know, we don't necessarily want these Republicans here. And some people are actually having the audacity to argue that, well, we don't think there's going to be an economic benefit to the city. So yesterday, there was a Common Council committee meeting. One of the things that has to happen and it has to happen really, really quick, is that th- there has to be a contract, an agreement between the Republican National Committee and the, the city. And they have to have agreements as to how much money the Republican National Committee is going to commit to spending and what the deposit's going to be and, you know, what they're going to do for infrastructure, costs, all these different sort of things. And th- there was an agreement that had been worked out. On a vote to seven by seven to one yesterday, the Common Council Committee rejected it. They, they tabled it and they said, no, no, we're we're not going to approve this. And they decided to add in a provision that I'm willing to be corrected, but I do not believe was put in when they signed the deal with the Democrats. The provision says in order to allow the Republicans to come to Milwaukee, what this Republican National Committee would have to do is pony up an extra Six million dollars. Just essentially pay six million dollars for the privilege of bringing 50,000 people to Milwaukee in addition to all the other costs that they have to assume. The six million dollars would be used to address housing, higher education and workforce development. So they want the Republican National Committee to pay six million dollars over and above all this other stuff. And I, I think, you know, the, the one alderman, and whenever you see some of the people behind this, Marina Dmitrievic, Bob Bauman, these are people who haven't been right more than maybe once or twice in their entire career. If you're ever trying to figure out where you want to be on a particular issue, find out where Bob Bauman is. Go the other way, you're going to be right on almost all situations. Broken clock is right twice a day, so every once in a while he stumbles into the correct thing. But they are willing to kill the deal with the Republican National Committee to bring the convention here by demanding $6 million. And everybody I've talked to says that this is, it's a deal killer. It's just, this is a poison pill. And by putting this in, you essentially guarantee that the convention is going to go to Nashville. That That's sort of essentially where we are. And there's no question in my mind that this is, this is politics. This is the members of the Common Council who've decided we don't like those evil Republicans. We don't want them in our city because, of course, you know, they're all white supremacists and people who want to kill folks with guns and they hate us. So why should we take their $200 million for our area businesses? So in any event, they put in this requirement $6 million. I, 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 like, like I said, I'm told that there's no way the Republican National Committee is going to go for this. So this Unless somebody backs off, unless cooler heads prevail on the part of the Common Council, that this is that poison pill that's going to end up killing it. So, I mean, here's 
I guess I have two thoughts, and I want to open up the phone lines and get your reaction. First of all, if we wake up tomorrow or next week or two weeks from now, and the headline is the Republican National Committee just says to heck with Milwaukee, they're, they're going to Nashville. All right, are, are you going to be happy about that? I mean, is and, and then why are you happy about that? Why, why are you happy about turning down 50,000 people, and it's, if it's not 200 million, it's 100 million, whatever that is? Is this something positive, and are we really accomplishing anything by saying, oh, we showed those evil Republicans? So number one, you know, if, if we've driven people to Nashville, like I am afraid this does, it, it isn't, are, are you going to feel good about that? Number two. And I've really been wrestling with this all morning. If somebody that I know on the Republican National Committee, and I I do not know anybody that's involved in in making the decision, at least I don't know them well. But if somebody called me and said, Jeff, you know, what do you think? They've just done this to us. This is the way the Common Council is reacting to this. You know, what, what do you think should happen? From the perspective of the RNC, I, 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 and this is from somebody who grew up around here. There's a lot of great things that Milwaukee has. But, you know, if clearly if you aren't wanted, and that's what the Common Council is saying, they're sending messages saying we, we really don't want you because we don't agree with you and we think that you're evil. I, I think my advice might be, you know, Nashville is a great town. Tennessee is a great state. You know, you go to Nashville and all the delegates, I guarantee you, they're going to hit Music Row and they're going to have a great time in Milwaukee. I can't guarantee you what the experience is going to be because it's pretty clear that at least a lot of the political class don't want you here. Now, I'm accepting the mayor in this case, but a lot of people just don't want him here. So from the perspective of the RNC, given what happened yesterday and given the fact that members of the Common Council are trying to hold them up for an extra six million bucks, is it time maybe for the Republican National Convention to just say, fine, Nashville wants us. You don't want us in Milwaukee. Go with God. That's fine. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think that would be a darn shame if it happened. But to me, it's looking more and more likely because if I'm on the site selection for the convention and I'm looking at this stuff and I'm seeing what some of our politicians are saying, and I'm saying, wait a second, they, they want to hold us up for six million bucks on top of all we're bringing? Thanks. Nashville is great. 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620. Jeff, the convention should go to Nashville. It'd be much safer there. Milwaukee's not safe. I'm attending. I'll fly to Nashville before I drive to Milwaukee. The Democrats have worked hard to keep it that way. Jeff, wouldn't something like this pretty much shut down any future convention, making people even considering Milwaukee? Well, I think that there's kind of an element to that. Um, And again, I I just... uh, Jeff, are these the same dim bulbs that turned down the meatpacking plant? Yes, 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 they are. This is, remember, you, you had Strauss Meatpacking that wanted to bring 200-plus jobs to a depressed area on Capitol Drive, and the thought was, well, we don't want a slaughterhouse here, so the Strauss said, fine, we'll, we'll go somewhere else, and that area continues to be, you know, a, a depressed area. I mean, 
you know, Jeff, why do we need to build a bigger convention center if this is the attitude? You know, money is, in fact, green. Yes, Jeff, this is embarrassing. I don't want to hear Milwaukee crying that they're over budget and need more money anymore. Um, they push way more good deals out because of politi- petty political issues than I have ever seen. Right, and this is, tell this to all the businesses. Now, again, I, I don't know that a convention brings $200 million bucks in. That might be an inflated amount, but it's going to bring a lot in. you got 50,000 people coming to this city, and you're going to thumb your nose at it because, let's be honest, these are Republicans. We don't want them here. Well, wouldn't you want the money? It's green, for goodness sakes. Let's talk to Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good, Mike. What do you think? Well, I think that the uh, common council members who voted against this ought to be tarred and feathers and then run out on a rail. Yeah, no, that, 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 thanks for the call. I, that that kind of says it all. I, I mean, if I'm an area of business, I, I'm talking to Bob Bauman, I'm talking to Marina Dmitrievic and the, and the other, you know, of the parts of the clown car act that are down there. I'm saying, what exactly are, are you thinking about with this? How do you turn this down? But again, it, it, it's politics. It's not business. I, again, I'm willing to be corrected, but I don't think that they were extorting $6 million on, out of the, the Democrats. This is because we don't like those evil Republicans. Well, well, fine. If that's the attitude, well, maybe the Republicans should respond in their own fashion. Robert in Oconomowoc. Robert, you're on WTMJ. Thanks, Jeff. I think these people should also have to apologize to every baggage handler, bag check guy at the airport, every taxi driver at the airport, every bellhop at all the nice hotels, every waiter, waitress, bartender, and every food establishment in town that have all been starving for the last two years and would get a boon of great money coming in for a week or two. And every establishment owner ought to be calling up and saying, what are you doing to us? You're killing us. You've been killing us for two years. We have a chance to make probably a couple of months' worth of revenue in probably a week or so, and you're turning it away. Other other conventions are going to see that and say, you know what, we'll take our money elsewhere. Robert, thanks for calling. And let me just add, bootstrap onto that. Some of the vocal opponents, some of these like liberal interest groups that sent out a letter encouraging, let's reject the Republican National Committee, were, were, were labor groups. We're, we're labor groups, and you're exactly right. A lot of the people that serve to benefit, if you have a big convention here, are members of those groups. So th- this hatred for the Republicans is, is now bleeding over. We're willing to screw over our members. We're willing to deny them, like those extra tips and that extra revenue that you're talking about, because we hate this so much. Look, I... I don't know how all this plays out, but I do know if I was, again, somebody that, that didn't have a vested interest in having this come to Milwaukee, and I really do want to see it come to Milwaukee, but if I didn't have a vested interest coming to Milwaukee, to, in coming to Milwaukee, and, and I was like on the committee that's making this decision, and I'm based out of, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm based out of Indiana, or I'm based out of Oklahoma, or whatever, and I'm looking at this foolishness that went on in Milwaukee yesterday, I'm saying, fine, they don't want us here, but let's, let's go to Nashville. We know that that's going to be a good experience and Nashville is going to welcome us and you know we'll wave goodbye to Milwaukee and we won't necessarily wave with all our fingers live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios this is the Jeff Wagner show and now WTMJ's Jeff Wagner It's going to be a long election season. <laughs> I just kind of decided that because I, 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 I watch all the, the smear attacks and the things like that. And, and Ron Johnson, 
who is admittedly a controversial figure. Ron Johnson has a target on his back, figuratively speaking, because he is perceived as the most vulnerable Republican senator in in a an election year where it's going to be a bad year for the Democrats, but you don't know how bad it is. But right now, the Senate is 50-50. A lot of smart money says the Republicans are going to take control of the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. But one of the, the key elements in order to try to thwart a, a Republican takeover is unseating Ron Johnson. That, that, so that's there's all this money that's coming in. And I have said repeatedly on this program, I, I think Ron Johnson, who votes correctly almost all the time, I, I think, you know, Ron has created some of his own problems by taking just going down certain rabbit holes that I, I just I don't understand why he's gone down them. But but that being said, it's been interesting to me to watch the smears and the attacks and the stuff that's coming back out. And I'm glad to see, you know, that Senator Johnson's starting to respond to some of those. Because like I say, with, there, there are all sorts of legitimate policy disagreements you can have. And ultimately, what Wisconsin is going to have to decide is whether you want a conservative senator or the, the people that are running to take his seat are way to the left of Joe Biden, way, way, way to the left. We're talking about the abolish ICE, um, let, let's let's um, try to, like, to defund the police crowd. That that's, that's what a lot of these candidates are. And I think once people start focusing on where some of these candidates are on issues, it you're going to see poll numbers change and things like that. But in the meantime, you've got all these, like, Ron Johnson smear attacks, most of which it's kind of like, man, if you want to go after him and disagree on his policies, that's fine. But these manufactured smear attacks that then get magnified and highlighted in the media, it just, it shakes my head. I shake my head at it. And this is, there's one that's in JS Online right now. Here, here is the deal, the headline. Senator Ron Johnson uses tax dollars to travel between Florida family home and the U.S. Capitol. U.S. Senator Ron Johnson has been using taxpayer dollars to cover the costs of flights between a Florida family vacation home and Washington, D.C., including nine such trips last year. Federal records show Democrats say the expenditures by the multimillionaire Republican are a waste of public money because they say the trips have nothing to do with his official representing Wisconsin at the U.S. Capitol. All right. Another situation. Somebody has sent me one of these like little tweet things about somebody's head exploding. Here, here, here's the deal. Ron Johnson traveling to a vacation home in Florida. And then when he goes back to Wisconsin, to Washington, he's billing the taxpayers. Oh, how terrible. Okay, here, here, here's the way the rules work for elected officials. And it doesn't matter whether it's Tammy Baldwin or it's Ron Johnson or it's Nancy Pelosi or it's Chuck Schumer or, or whoever. The rules are that when you travel to Washington, D.C. on official business, you are entitled to be reimbursed. They, they, the government pays your plane ticket. That that's one of that's one of the deals. You you get your your reimbursement for traveling. Okay, so when Ron Johnson, let's say his home office is is Oshkosh or whatever, when Ron Johnson flies from Oshkosh through Milwaukee or however he does it to Washington. You, you to for business. The Senate's meeting on Monday. He's he's flying out on a on a Sunday night. He's entitled to be reimbursed for whatever it costs to fly from 
Oshkosh or Milwaukee to Washington, right? Got it? Does, does anybody here have, have a real problem with that? Do we expect that the – and if, if you do, if you have a problem with reimbursing elected officials for the mileage to travel from the home state to Washington, okay, we can have that conversation, but that's how the rules are. You get reimbursed, right? It's not unlike – I don't know if you're, you know, a salesperson and you're working and you're expected to fly from your home in Milwaukee out to New York City for a sales conference. Well, you're not going to be reaching into your own pocket and pay for it, right? Okay, so that's the deal. Well, what if, what if you are, for example, on vacation? So you're on vacation one week and you're in Florida and you have to go back to Washington. Well, what the rules say is that if you're in Florida, for example, and you've got to go to Washington, so instead of on that Sunday night you're flying from Oshkosh to Washington, you're in Fort Myers and you got to fly up to Washington, you're going to work. You are, and this is the rule say, you are entitled to be reimbursed. The only deal is your reimbursement can't be more than if you were flying from home. So in other words, if it costs, I don't let's pick a number, 500 bucks to fly from Milwaukee or Oshkosh to Washington, D.C., okay? You, and let's say it's 500 bucks. Well, if instead you're down in Florida and you're flying from Fort Myers to Washington, you're, you're, you're entitled to get reimbursed for it. It just can't be more than 500 bucks. That, that's the rule. It can't be more than if you were flying from what they call your, your duty station. And if you think about it, it, it makes sense. doesn't make any sense to say, okay, well, if you're on vacation in Florida, we want you to fly back to Wisconsin and then then fly to, on, on your own dime and then fly to um, then, then fly to D.C. It makes no sense. The, these are the rules, and if you think about it, they, they make perfect sense. Doesn't matter where you are, as long you know you can fly back to work to go to work in Washington, the taxpayers will reimburse you. Now, maybe you just don't like that rule, but that's the way it works. And the only caveat is again, it can't be more. More than flying from your home state. Nobody suggests that Ron Johnson build the taxpayers improperly. Nobody says he billed them on those flights he might have taken from Fort Myers to go back to D.C. Nobody says he billed them more than he was entitled to. He, he's entitled to do this under the rules, under the laws, and yet this is now, I don't know, it's probably, I'm looking at it, maybe it's like a 40-plus paragraph scandal, once again, that's in the local newspaper. And the truth of the matter is, it's it's kind of ultimate nothing burger. He's flying from his home in Florida and billing the taxpayers. Well, yeah, but they're, they're allowed to do it. He's a, It doesn't matter where he's flying from, as long as he doesn't charge more than he's entitled to. And again, look, I understand if you're going after Ron Johnson, there's all sorts of issues and policy matters and things that you can come up with. But really, can't we do better than some of the just bizarre smear efforts. And my comment to people in the mainstream media is, you know, maybe maybe you should just think about these things for once in a while. And I understand that there's here, there's a challenge and the Democrats are trying to make this this issue. And here we're going to run this out there. Maybe you should just try to figure out, Okay, do, do we need to completely every time do we need to be an arm of the opposition? And every time somebody throws out some BS sort of claim, does that mean that we have to guppy on it? Because, again, if if Ron Johnson is monkeying around and he's violating Senate rules with regard to travel expenses, believe me, that is a legitimate issue. 
and it's worthy of being aired, and it's worthy of going to the senator and saying, what do you mean? You know, are, are, you, are you playing fast and loose with your expense account? But as near as I can figure, everything that Ron Johnson did in this case is perfectly legitimate. And my guess is if you looked at travel records from many, many, many members of the U.S. Senate who I have no doubt have, have multiple homes uh, across the, the country— um, my guess is you would find that this is a relatively common practice, perfectly legitimate, and yet this is the latest scandal du jour. I'll send out a link on Twitter. You can follow me at Jeff Wagner 620 But again, this is the sort of stuff that can't we do better? Can't we just focus on, on these, these issues instead of manu- on the real issues and the real policy differences in trying to manufacture crap that really, I don't know, What's the Shakespeare phrase? Sound and fury that signifies nothing. All right. Let us switch gears. I want to talk about certain aspects of the the shooting that occurred a couple days ago. And I I just the fact that one of the frustrating things I have, and I said this yesterday, is I've been – I, I was on the air when Columbine happened, and I, I, I remember the, the conversations that we had. And unfortunately, we, we've had a lot of those same conversations over the 20-plus the years since then. And, and you've got some people that you know think, well, it, it, it's, all, it's all about the guns, and we need to confiscate guns and ban guns. And then there's other people who think that, no, we shouldn't do anything. And the truth is that there really should be a common ground that we could uh, agree on. We're going to talk about some of that. But I want to start out with a why question, and I sort of teased this yesterday, and I admit I am intrigued by this. Um, Since 1982, so over the last 40 years, there have been 123 mass shootings carried out in the United—actually, there have been 126 mass shootings, and a mass shooting, for the purpose of our conversation, is defined as a single attack in a public place in which four or more victims were killed. So this would exclude you know, a, a, crime of, a crime of passion where you have the husband that comes home and you know, it's in a private residence and shoots up the residence. This is public place, single attack, four or more victims killed. Since 1982, so over the last 40 years, there have been 126 mass shootings. Of those 126 mass shootings, 123 have been carried out by men, three by women. This, when it comes to mass shootings, the perpetrators are almost exclusively Male. Now, it, it varies within the category of male. I mean, sometimes you, you have, you know, you have shooters who are white. Sometimes you have shooters who are Hispanic. Sometimes you have shooters who are black. But and, and it tends to be young. I'll give you those numbers in just a minute. But it, it's by and large, it, it's almost an exclusively male province. You do not hear stories of the disaffected you know, 18-year-old female grabbing a gun and going in and shooting up an elementary school. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't know that I have an answer as to why this is, 
But I admit that I, I'm intrigued by this because, you know, we, we have everybody that's, that you, you want to focus on, well, it's, it's the guns. Well, okay, but you, you don't have women that are buying guns and going to do this. All right? you, you don't. And, you, you know, we have, well, it's, it's mental illness. And I think that that's a factor. But, but, you know, you don't hear about the mentally ill women who are going out and grabbing the guns and doing this. So I, I, I put this out there just to have a discussion on this because I admit I find it intriguing. When it comes to mass public shootings, why is it that it is almost exclusively men who are responsible? What is your theory? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I am genuinely, cur- genuinely curious about why you think this is. If you're just tuning in, 126 mass shootings. That's four or more in a public place, four or more deaths in a public place. 126 since 1982. Of those 126, 123 have been carried out by men. What 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 is going on here? 855-616-1620. Jeff, in general, I believe that men have more of a fight or flight instinct in them. Sadly, if they are very mentally ill or significant criminals, they tend to fight or cause harm to other people thinking they are resolving their own issues. And it seems like men nowadays have another instinct to make a statement or a name for themselves, even if it's literally 15 seconds of fame for the wrong reason. Um... Jeff, I think women, it's because women are better with expressing their feelings. Men suppress their feelings, and then they explode. Um, Jeff, um, from an early age, boys are drawn to, and like guns, girls are not. Girls do not receive guns at Christmas time or for birthdays. Boys do. Boys also play war and cowboys and Indians when young, which involve guns and arrows. I think it is the male nature. All right, let's start with uh, Scott in South Milwaukee. Scott, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Yeah, on this topic, um, my my take is that over the last 20 to 25 years, within the educational system and society in general, you have seen an acceleration whatever, of, att- of attention, whatever, which is paid to the educational achievement, whatever, of girls over boys to the point, whatever, where if you're a, if you're a boy going through school, I mean, you're almost getting whatever the impression of, of why should I be here? Because all the scholarship activities, all the career advancement notices are all tailored, whatever, to attracting girls, whatever, to, to, to achieve athletics, go into certain, whatever, go into certain career fields. What have you ever seen, whatever, what have you ever seen, what, um, um, an advertisement or a publication, whatever, where publicity, whatever, encouraging boys, whatever, to go into, say, non traditional, um, what um, mm-hmm. um fields of work for for girls you just don't see it and, and i just think that you have a lot of young kids and youth whatever who are just whatever especially boys whatever who are just feeling feeling whatever all right what's what's my reason and my overall purpose whatever for for being here whatever when no matter what i do i'm not going to get any i'm not going to get the same level of, of attention as the girls mm-hmm. Well, interesting, Scott. I think a lot of people would would say though that that it, it's still a man's world, and that that you know the it's 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 girls who are 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 still even though we're we're doing better at kicking through the glass ceiling. I think there's a lot of people would say no. It, it's actually still again women have a much harder time advancing and things. I I, I just I wrestle with this whole concept because I, I was actually struck with the numbers. Okay, we got to take a quick break.
And the press conference is still going on. We'll continue to keep you updated if there's any significant new information that emerges. If you can't tell, if you're listening to the program yesterday, I, I am, I am frustrated by so many levels of of what happened. Of course, I am appalled by the the tragedy. You know, 21 people dead in yet another one of these mass shooting situations. And, and then I, I am appalled by the fact that you have so many people who come out and again try to exploit this for whatever purposes that they have. And I'm also, I think, bothered a little bit because to me, politics is the art of the possible. And you you have some people who treat what I think is a very, very real issue as kind of a debating society. And because it helps them raise money or it helps them appeal to their particular base, and I'm I'm saying this on the right or left, they, they, they take their positions without any recognition of reality. For example, I know there are people out there who think that we should outlaw semi-automatic rifles, all right? But here, here is the reality. There are 20 million semi-automatic rifles in, in existence across this country, 20 million. And I, I raised this question yesterday. Re- realistically, how can the government get those back, even if you wanted to, again, ban private possession of those. You've got to, there's 20 million people, 20 million, at least 20 million of those firearms that are out there. Now, you can encourage people. I understand in Australia, in the mid-1990s, they did a gun buyback program. They outlawed them, but there were, there were 600,000, and Australia is different than the United States. You don't have that, that sort of gun culture. But, okay, so for people who say, well, we should just outlaw them, and we should force people to turn them in. And my question is, okay, explain to me how this is going to work, because if you have any significant percentage of those people who decide that they're not going to turn their firearms in. What are you going to do to them? Are you going to prosecute them? Are you going to put them in prison? We don't put felons who carry guns, you know, in prison. So what what are we going to do? Are we going to take 5 or 10 or 15 million Americans and, and put them in prison? It's just, it might sound great in theory, and it might be one of those things that if we were, I don't know, going back and rewriting the Constitution, the Second Amendment, we, we might take it from a different approach. But to me, it's just not practical. It's just not a realistic sort of, of thing to do. But that doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't be able to agree on, on some things that do, in fact, make sense. For example, and this is the conversation that I want to have, um, in Texas and in many other states— You can buy one of these types of firearms, the the semi-automatic rifles. And again, I I understand whenever I talk about this, people say, well, you know that you shouldn't call them assault weapons. I I, I understand. That's that's the phrase the media uses. They are not machine guns. They are, you have to pull the trigger each time to fire a round. But the bottom line is you can fire a lot of rounds very, very quickly. They're high-powered. And so you can create a, a lot of carnage with these. Okay, so here, here is the deal. In approximately 20%, approximately one out of five, of all active shootings at K-12 schools, about 20%, are committed by people between the ages of 18 and 20. About 20%. Um, my question is, would you support 
limiting the purchase of these type of firearms to people who are 21 or or older. In this case, the Robb Elementary gunman reportedly bought his assault rifles just a few days prior to the shooting, right after he turned 18. Now, if we were to say, all right, we're going to limit the—we're not going to say that you can't own a firearm once you turn 18, but what if we limited ownership— to the type of long guns traditionally used for for hunting. You can have a shotgun if you want. You can have a more traditional sort of firearm. You can have a rifle that you would use for deer hunting. But until you're 21, you don't need to have an AR-15. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Would this be a reasonable position that all of us, or at least the majority of us, could agree on. And, and by the way, don't text me or call and say, well, you know, that wouldn't necessarily stop the, the mass shootings. No, I know it wouldn't stop the mass shootings. But it, do you need, if you're 18 years old in four days, do you need to go out and, and buy an AR-15 or two AR-15s and a whole bunch of rounds of ammunition? Do you need to do that? Um, or would this be sort of a reasonable thing to say, okay, well, you know, maybe— Maybe we're going to—you can still have a gun. We're not saying you can't have a handgun. We're not saying you can't have a shotgun. But until you're 21, you don't need an AR-15 or a similar type of firearm. I guess I look at that and I'd say, I say, okay, I don't know that that's going to stop all the school shootings. I don't suggest that it would. But it seems to me that that might be a reasonable, a reasonable position that most people could agree on. What would you think about limiting the purchase of these type of firearms to people who are 21 and older? 855-616-1620. I guess I, I think it's a baby step, but I, I don't understand what the real objections to that baby step could be. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. All right. I, I understand we're, we're just all over the map with, with issues with regard to gun control. And I, I, I believe, by the way, that there are limits of that. But I'm also somebody who believes in politics being the art of the possible. Okay, the shooter yesterday was 18 years old. 20% of the shootings in um, in schools are conducted by are done by people who are under the age of 21. All right, as a starting point, is it unreasonable to say, okay, you, you can't buy this particular type of firearm? You can't buy it till you're 21. I guess I look at that and don't think that that's unreasonable. 855-616-1620. Cliff in Hartford. Cliff, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing today? Good. What do you think? I own two semi-automatic rifles. One's an AR-15 and one's a hunting rifle I use. I'm in my 40s. And I believe you should be 21 to be able to buy an AR-15 or any kind of uh, semi-automatic rifle. Mm -hmm. Look at the fact you have to be 21 to buy any tobacco products, but only 18 to buy a semi-automatic rifle. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you you have to be twenty one before you can buy a beer, <laughs> but you can you can you can buy this type of firearm, and you can go buy all these high capacity magazines. and And I I appreciate that. Look, most eighteen or nineteen year olds that buy firearms, they use them for legitimate purposes. They're out hunting or target shooting or whatever. I understand that. But do any of them need at the age of eighteen and four days, you know, one of these particular type of weapons? And I guess my answer would be no. Wait, wait till you're twenty one. And and is it possible? Possible that 18-year-old might find another weapon to use to commit something like this? Yes, but I guess I look at this as a reasonable baby step. 
the problem is people are looking at it as AR-15s are the problem. It's not the problem. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's the firearms. The problem is it's the people using the gun. Yeah. It's not the gun doing it. It's the people using them that shouldn't be owning a gun anyway. Well, yes. Thank you. And matter of fact, we're going to get to that in the next hour. Now, the thing is, though, there are certain types of firearms that are if they get in the wrong hands, the hands of the mentally ill person, they are capable of, of causing more carnage. And, and that's that's what you see when we talk about those type of firearms. Um, again, I understand what I'm talking about as a baby step, but I'm trying to find things that maybe we could all kind of come together, you know, on the right and the left and say, okay, that, that's, that makes sense. Lamar, who is calling us from Orlando. Lamar, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Um, so I would take it a step. I would take it a step further. Um, not only would I, make, I would make it twenty-five. That's just me. But there's scientific reasons for that because of the brain development and whatnot. But not only would I ban these high-capacity rifles, uh, you know, make it twenty-one handguns as well, because you know, obviously, school shootings is a terrible problem in our country. Another problem in our country is urban violence, and a lot mm-hmm. of the just regular quote-unquote street shootings happen on our streets happen with handguns yep. so i would put handguns in that same you know in that same space so you know you kind of kill two birds with one stone no pun intended and you would do a little bit to curb it the next step obviously would be dealing with you know the tracking and the straw purchases but that's another conversation so you you would make cover, you would make uh, you would make purchasing or possession of a handgun for people under the age of 21 or whatever you you'd make that illegal as well so you'd essentially in as an effort to try to keep guns out of the hands of uh, to, to to sort of suppress the urban violence yes yes yeah. i can't tell you it's oh my gosh there's a whole underground group of young people that get their hands on either handguns yeah. or or you know these bigger high capacity guns yeah. and that's how violence happens all it takes is one one bad apple and then you have a tragedy yeah no thanks for call i mean i think that's again something I think that that's part of of a conversation to have, which and and I guess I'd have to I'd have to look at the numbers and I'd have to be convinced would when especially when you're talking about something with handguns, which are so very prevalent, would that make any sort of difference at all? And I, I throw that out there, and again, I I don't argue that this is the solution to school shootings. I throw that out there, saying if we're trying to find some common ground, can can we agree on on certain things that might be practical? that you might do and that might be able to make a little bit of a difference. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Jane Matinair. I have a Ray Liotta story. You do? I Ray Liotta who passed away at the age of 67. And it's I, I was debating whether to tell this story, because I, and I hope people take, take it in the spirit it's offered, because... I had two takeaways from from four years of high school Latin. The two things I remember from Juanita, the great, late great Juanita Bonham at Nicolay High School was the two phrases were in wino verum, which means in wine there is truth, and the other is de mortem nil nisi bonum, which means speak nothing but good of the dead. So I I I, I was a huge Ray Liotta fan. I, I just I'm a movie buff. I loved Field of Dreams, yeah. which was his first kind of big breakthrough thing. He yes. played Shoeless Joe Jackson, mm-hmm. and then he went on in 1990 Goodfellas, which I think is arguably along with the godfather the, one of the two best mobster movies ever made i just i just i was a huge fan of goodfellas so it's 2002 
And the remember the All Star game was in Milwaukee, and so remember that was the game that ended in a tie and right, all that right, controversy. Right. So they, they had a fan expo that was down at the the convention center downtown on Wisconsin Avenue, and we were broadcasting from there. So I'm doing my show from there. Ray Liotta was there. I mean, Major League Baseball had brought him in, I think, because of the Field of Dreams thing. So Ray Liotta was there. David Arquette was there. You know, I, what what his connection? I, and I remember doing an interview with David Arquette that, as I think back on all the interviews I did, this was not one of my better ones. We, we, <laughs> we just, all have those. Right. We, we, we just, let me put it like this, we weren't clicking. And it, right. I don't know if it was his fault or my fault or maybe both of ours, but it, it, it just, it's just, as I, didn't, as didn't, I didn't go, go back, well. it would not, it, yeah, it wasn't that great. But, but Ray Liotta, and I'm trying to, rem- I met him, and I'm trying, I've been trying to remember whether we actually were on the air, or, or maybe I met him and, and we talked and he just didn't have time to do it. I, I forget what. But my, my big Ray Liotta thing was, and it's funny how all the great stuff he did, this is what sticks in my mind. When he was walking around the, the convention center and stuff, he was in full makeup. I mean, he had like, you know, really? like, like, yeah. I mean, he had, he had, like, I mean, like, like a Hollywood actor. I mean, it was like, you could just tell. I mean, there was just all this makeup on, and he had, um, mascara on, you know, I mean, the eyeliner and stuff, you know, and it was just, it really, it, it's, it's funny because I think he's a great actor and stuff. I'm enjoyed, but it, whenever I think of Ray Liotta, it was like, in, it was like he was getting ready to do a scene in a Hollywood movie. He was just like in, like, the full, full face makeup. I, I'm stuff. wondering if he just came from a photo shoot or something, I, or, I would like to think that, let's say. Well, I don't know. I mean, but that, that it's weird because, I mean, again, this is, I, I was really looking forward. I think this guy's this great actor, and he's in one of my best movies at all. And whenever I think back on him, I'm thinking it was just, it was just really weird because he's got, like, this full-blown makeup thing on. And stage I'm thinking, makeup, that's odd. Right, it was the stage makeup, and I, I just keep remembering all the, the eyeliner and the mascara and stuff, and I'm thinking, huh. You know, I just want to highlight those beautiful blues. Jeff. Well, that that could that could very well be, but that's again, that's my one thought about Ray Liotta. That was my one Ray Liotta contact, and it's like he was in full makeup. And then, like I say, David Arquette, we we, we didn't actually. I might I might have gotten it back. I might have gotten it started on a bad note because I I might have asked him how because at the time he was married to Courtney Cox from Friends, and I I, I might have asked him how she was doing, and that's kind of how we said it might might have been partly my fault, but. It happens. It happens. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Let us let us switch gears and let's get let's get serious again. I, I I do as I was saying in the last part of the program. I think that we should be able to come together as reasonable, rational, sane people, and and say maybe there are things that we can do that might not eliminate the potential for mass shootings or things like that. But things that we could agree on that, that might be, again, baby steps that reasonable people could agree that, that we, we could do. And, and I understand that it doesn't make like the hardcore, we've got to confiscate all the guns that are in the, in the United States, which isn't going to happen. And then there's the other people who say, well, you, you can't do anything. And, you know, we, we think that the Second Amendment is absolute. And if we want to carry machine guns and bazookas, we should be able to do that. Okay, I, I understand that there are people on both of those extremes. I don't happen to be one of them. So I, I'm, I'm wrestling with things that we could do that maybe reasonable people would agree on it. And it won't stop all the shootings and the violence, but maybe you could say, Okay, I, I think one of them is, again, if you were to say we're going to raise the limit at which point you can legally buy a, a, a semi-automatic 
rifle, like an AR-15 or similar ones, to 21, I, I don't think that that's un, unreasonable. Does that stop all the mass shootings? No, it doesn't. But I think that's that's a reasonable restriction. One of the other things, which may be more controversial, but I would like to seriously discuss with you, is the whole question of high-capacity magazines. Now, for, for people who aren't necessarily familiar with, with firearms, you have semi-automatic rifles and and pistols, you know, handguns. I own a semi-automatic handgun, right? The way it works is there is a magazine that you insert into it. And I think the magazine that I have, it's capable, you can have one one bullet that is in the chamber of the gun, and I think the one I have has eight, eight other rounds. So you could, with that, that my magazine, you could fire nine shots as quickly as you could pull a trigger. And then th- then what you have to do is you have to reload. Now, uh, admittedly, you can do it really, relatively quickly. You push this button, the empty magazine falls out. If you had another one in your pocket, you slam it in. But you do have to reload. And so there are, are pauses. Um, High-capacity magazines are defined as magazines clips, if you want to use it that way, that have more than 10 or sometimes 15 rounds. It depends how you want to do that. But they are, again, larger capacity. There are, there, the standard high-capacity magazine holds 30 rounds of ammunition. So you can fire 30 rounds as quickly as you can pull a trigger before you have to reload. Um, the numbers show that shootings involving high-capacity magazines have more fatalities and injuries than those that don't. I'm looking at some statistics. In mass shootings between 2009 and 2020, high-capacity magazines led to five times as many people shot per mass shooting. And if, and if you think about it, it, it makes sense because you, you can fire 30 shots before you have to stop and reload, and then you reload with another high-capacity magazine that's got 30 or more rounds in it, and, and you shoot that off, whereas if you've got the standard size magazine, you can only fire 9 or 10 shots before you have to reload. Now, don't get me wrong. You, you can, if you're carrying a bunch of these magazines, you, you can fire a lot of shots, but it is easier to fire lots of shots faster if you have the high-capacity magazines. In 1994, Congress passed a law that generally prohibited high-capacity magazines, but that prohibition expired in 2004. And so as a general rule, high-capacity magazines are legal unless you have a state or local law which prohibits them, and there are, by my count, about 10 states that, that do not allow these. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In an effort to, once again, have a sane and sensible conversation about this, here, here is my, my my question. All right, should we allow, again, the, the purchase of high-capacity magazines. Now, I, I don't want to go down the route of, okay, well, what about all the people that have them now? Are you going to confiscate them or whatever? Let's just talk about moving forward. Should you be able to go in and buy high-capacity magazines? Is there any legitimate purpose? Is there a reason why people need to be able to shoot 30 rounds, for example, at once without having to reload? Or is it reasonable to say, hey, I'm, I'm using my AR-15 for, for target shooting? 
Well, okay, fine. I, I, I have I take nine shots or ten shots or whatever it is, and then I, I, I have to at least pause and, and reload. I, I've got I'm deer hunting. I want to use my AR fifteen for deer hunting. All right, unless you're a really bad hunter, you're you're not gonna you're you're not going to fire, you know, thirty shots shooting at a deer, are are you? Um, as somebody from my perspective as a handgun owner. Okay, I mean, I like to, I haven't been to shooting range in a long time, but when I would go to the shooting range, okay, you, you fire the nine rounds or whatever you have in your gun, and then you, you stop, and then you, you reload. It was not that big a deal. And as I sit here, as a firearms owner, it's difficult for me to make a strong argument as to why anybody outside of a law enforcement context or a military context, why you need large capacity guns. And a lot of times when it comes to crime guns, it would be the bad guys that have these these large capacity magazines. So 855-616-1620. All right, let, let's talk about this. Would this be a reasonable and sensible gun control measure limiting or prohibiting high capacity magazines? 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In, in trying to f- wonder if there's any sort of common ground, I, I, another one would be large-capacity magazines. They, they were prohibited for 10 years between 1994 and 2004. And, I mean, try as I like, I, I just... I have trouble understanding why average citizens, beyond law enforcement and the military, why does anybody need to have a large-capacity magazine that could fire 30 rounds without reloading? Now, here's a text, Jeff. Anything that inhibits my ability to protect myself from any threat, whether it's a bear or my government, is unacceptable. Fix the legal system, bring back mental health hospitals, and public educations, executions, problem solved. Now, I, we, we have limitations. Second Amendment isn't absolute. You know, we don't let you protect your home with with a bazooka. I guess the question becomes in this balancing, given how many times are you going to need that 30 round clip, that 30 round magazine to protect yourself versus the potential that that's going to be used for, you know, for bad purposes. 855-616-1620. Jeff, unless you're in law enforcement or you um, hold a valid hunting license, you don't even need these clips. Well, I would say, why, why do you need why do you need 30 rounds if you're a, if you're a deer hunter, for goodness sakes? I mean, uh, you, you're not going to be firing 30 shots at a particular uh, deer, are you? Jeff, three armed home invaders is reason enough for a high-capacity magazine. That change could make out all the difference between killing them and them killing you. All right, well... Again, there there has to be a sort of balancing that that is out there. And my question would be, how many people, you know, are are really using that AR-15 with the 30-round clip to defend their their home? I mean, how how often does that really end up occurring? And my guess is it would be rare. Quite candidly, I think you're probably a lot better off defending your home with a shotgun, which has that distinctive sound that once somebody hears it, you know, they they know they're going to get out of there. Uh, Jeff, as far as limiting uh, the size of the magazines, yes, yes, a million times yes. Jeff, I think high-capacity magazines are designed for killing people and military law enforcement, etc. No hunting or target practice use. You're not adding 10 pounds of ammo on a gun for better accuracy. 
Well, I think that there's, you know, elements of this. Jeff, I could care less. Take my 30-round clip away, magazine away. I'll give it to them. Stop making them. I don't care. I don't think they're needed except in the military. I use a 10-round in mine for hunting or for target shooting. Um, now, at the same time, it's just a Band-Aid. Yes, and I don't disagree with it. It It is... It is a Band-Aid, not arguing that point at all. It doesn't solve some of the underlying problems. Now, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know, first of all, I'm I'm a big one on on crime control. I, I think that the way, for example, we have treated repeat criminals with firearms is just disgraceful in in this country there is no we did a topic last week that i firmly believe you know felon in possession of a firearm i think there should be a mandatory minimum three to five year penalty for that there is no excuse in my opinion at least for having people that aren't legally allowed to carry firearms and they get caught with guns there's no excuse for the da's office just plea bargaining those charges away there's no excuses for judges not sending those people to prison if you're not allowed to have a gun you you shouldn't have one and i would lump that in the same capacity um I, again it's it's not just the mass shooting situations but you mean think about the the street criminals that are walking around with those weapons and with the the round the, the magazines that have the capacity to shoot 30 rounds at 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 one time um jeff i think any home invasion can be stopped with one shotgun well that's what i've always said um jeff all you have to do is you know take two standard clips to the back and flip them in three seconds well well right if if you feel that you need 30 rounds of ammunition for example to defend yourself from a home invasion if you believe that that's the case well then again in, in your gun safe, next to your gun, next to your bed, have three fully loaded magazines that are there. And admittedly, it might take you a second or two to reload, but you know, you'll, you'll still have plenty of firepower, I think, to deal with that situation if we have the ability to then keep these, what I think are arguably things that should be for the military, they're things that should be for law enforcement, you know, out of the hands of... Uh, again, the bad guys, and I understand when I'm saying this, that of the people that have these high-capacity magazines, I understand 99.999% of the people are not using them to shoot up schools or using them as crime guns. I, I get all that. And so to this extent, if we say, no, you can't have it because we're trying to make it more difficult for that 0.001% to get them, th- that, that is a trade-off. It, and it's, I guess it's a trade-off that I think people should at least be willing to make um you know jeff um cars can drive over 70 miles an hour and they do well yeah they you know they end up doing that but the bottom line is i'm not saying that we get rid of cars but i'm not saying we get rid of firearms either i'm just saying maybe we put some restrictions on that all right let's take a quick break back with more in just a minute one of our texts says, why do people need to smoke? That kills millions. Why? I think that that's a fair question, but I'm not talking about outlawing cigarettes. I'm also not talking about outlawing firearms, but you're just, uh, for example, we have all sorts of limits. I'll lose the example of cigarettes. Right now, the FDA is considering banning menthol cigarettes because they think it's overly addictive. They're not going to stop people from smoking otherwise. But again, when you look at the firearms, I'm not talking about taking your guns away. I'm not talking about limiting your ability to defend yourself. I'm just saying that, hey, if if 
we do individuals need to have high capacity magazines and would that restrict second amendment rights or would that deprive people of the enjoyment of their firearms um and and where is the balancing and i guess i look at that just like i think maybe 18 year olds don't need to buy ar-15s and this isn't oh my gosh jeff you become this huge liberal you're talking about confiscating guns no i'm not i'm just wondering if there's reasonable things that we could all agree on baby steps that might make it more difficult for criminals to act out or mentally ill people to act out in these violent ways. Just saying. Yeah, I was, um, I I talk a lot, I know, about the the, the car thefts in Milwaukee and the out-of-control stuff that goes on. And and every once in a while, it, it, it hits home because... If you're not a victim yourself, but you know somebody. I told a story about how a very dear friend of mine, her name is Mary, and um, she went to she went to dinner one Friday night about six weeks ago on Farwell Avenue. You know, went in to see her friends. You parked her car, came out, car is gone, and you know the police find it uh, about twelve or fourteen hours later, and it's if not totaled, it's it's severely damaged. Somebody run it into a fire hydrant or whatever, and it was just really disruptive. Not only the sense of how, how she's violated, you know, this might stolen your your stuff, you know, you're violated like that. But then it's the it's, it's all the problems. Yeah, you you got insurance and you pay the deductible. But you know, nowadays it it's not like you know you snap your fingers and you get the car repaired. So that the car is in the shop for X number of weeks. And I think she was I ran into her the other day and she at a funeral. She's telling me, yeah, I, I finally got it back, but it was kind of a nightmare because it took them like six weeks to fix the car and the my insurance paid for a rental car for four weeks and then after that i'm into my own pocket or i'm borrowing cars and it's it's all it's all this stuff it's all these different factors and you really begin to understand how you know being a victim it it just how it affects somebody on on so many different levels and i guess i just i've I've known people who who are victims and so you you personalize this it's more than just a statistic or a, a story uh, you know, something related to that is I was saying at the start of the show last night, I was at um, one of our, our one of our grandkids concerts at uh, Pewaukee High School. And uh, my one of my two son in laws is is a teacher at Greenfield High School, a special ed teacher, nice guy. And uh, we were talking about th- this story that you you might have heard of uh, Saturday night in Greenfield, West Loomis Road near Edgerton. A uh, young man, 16-year-old student who was the captain of, like, the Greenfield High School soccer team. And it's 1030 at night, and he was he actually, I think, had been playing a soccer match. And he was the victim of a hit-and-run accident. Apparently, he was in the street, and he was struck, uh, critically injured. The driver fled and then subsequently was arrested. They, they caught him. Charges haven't come out yet. Uh, the young man was taken to Children's Hospital, and as of as of right now, they describe as critically injured. But I was talking to my son-in-law. He knows the kid, and it's we start talking about what a great kid this this was and all. And it really it, it kind of hits home when you recognize you know all the carnage that is going on, and it's the hit and run drivers, and it's the reckless drivers, and it's the car thefts, and all these type of things. And and yeah, we can talk about it in the abstract, and you can say, oh, isn't this really terrible? But then at the same time, when you talk to people who know folks who are the the victims of of this, you know, you had the press conference with uh, Milwaukee County Sheriff Ernell Lucas, who was talking about that that story from the other day, where you have 
the guy who's driving, you know, he, he's just, what was he, just a little bit south of Hampton Avenue, d- driving 90 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour, blowing through stop signs. The Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office, they see him, they try to pull the car over, takes off, blows through other stop signs, red lights, end up slamming into a car, killing a 40-year-old man, um, 43-year-old woman and a one-year-old baby are in the car. You know, they, they survive this. And then the two people that were in the car, they're, they're in the wind. They're, they're running. I think they have a pretty good idea of who the, who the driver might have been, but, th- but they're actively looking for it. But, you know, you, you just, you hear these stories and you think, Okay, it's not just a, a name. It's not just the number. These are real people that are being killed. These are real people that are being victimized on an almost daily basis. And crime around here has gotten so out of control that you almost want to say, if you haven't been a crime victim yourself and, and you you don't know somebody who has been a, a victim of crime in the last six months, just just wait a week because you, you probably will. And it's just it's amazing to me how this just hits home over and over and over again. All right, let's talk about one other idea that's being thrown out with regard to maybe reducing the potential for school shootings. Now, first couple conversations we had over the last hour were things that you could do with regard to access to firearms. Should we limit it? Should we limit the purchase of AR-15 type weapons to people 21 or older? Should we limit the purchase of high capacity magazines? Okay, so that's dealing with that aspect of it. Let's talk about one of the other aspects of it. One of the ideas that is being thrown around is the concept of training and arming teachers and school administrators. Now, obviously, not everybody would feel comfortable with that. One of the things that I have always said about firearms is that if the the only thing worse than needing a gun and not having a gun is having a gun, needing the gun, and not knowing how to use that, that gun. Not everybody would be comfortable. Not every teacher, not every school administrator would be comfortable having a gun in in the classroom or or whatever. They they wouldn't want to do it. And I don't think there's any way that you should force somebody to, to do that. But if you had X number of teachers at a particular school who were comfortable with firearms, were willing to go through training so they could demonstrate that they knew how to use firearms, not unlike police officers have to qualify to use firearms. All right, should they be allowed to possess firearms in schools with the idea that maybe, just maybe, that they would be able to help deter a threat if that threat develops? 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If somebody were to volunteer and sign up, and be willing to go through the training and qualify should a school administrator or a school teacher be allowed to have a firearm in the schools. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I don't believe that teachers' unions will agree to the principle of arming teachers. Their job is to educate children, not protect them from gun violence. I'm from the Chicago suburbs. I'm a female. We have strict security and safety officers at most schools. Um, I Well, first of all, I, as I was saying yesterday, I'm, I'm 
I'm not opposed to having safety, you know, safety officers in schools. And yes, I understand they had a safety officer at the school the other day. And, and none of these are absolute. But I, I think, for example, the decisions that they've made in Milwaukee and Madison to to get rid of the school resource officers is incredibly short sighted and potentially incredibly dangerous. I, I guess I I look at this though, and and I I don't think any teacher should be forced to to have a firearm if if they don't want to. I don't think that's the case. And obviously, and I take this is from my perspective as somebody who, you know, back in, in the day, you know, trained for, qualified, and carried a firearm for a couple of years because of death threats and stuff based on what I used to do. Um, I, I So you have to know how to use the gun and things like that. I guess if you had... And I don't think many teachers would, would volunteer for this. I don't think many of them would sign up for it. But I guess my reaction is if you have – maybe you got a teacher who's ex-military or ex-law enforcement or, or whatever who knows how to use a firearm, who's willing to go through the training and who's willing to demonstrate that they can that, – that they know how to do it, if they choose to, I guess I don't understand why we would tell them that they couldn't. Should they be forced to? Absolutely not. 855-616-1620. Let's start with, uh, let's see, Ed in Wauwatosa. Ed, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. I think the idea of Army teachers sounds sounds good, but I fear in practice this could go wrong horribly. Were you ever a child yourself? Did you ever do something mischievous, bend the rules, snitch something from the teacher? There's a thousand ways this could go wrong, and, and only one way could go right, and, and you got to play the odds on that. Well, no, give, give me, I mean, give me an ex- well, give me, well, give me, give me an example. You're thinking that some kid, for example, would grab the kid's gun, grab the teacher's gun, and shoot themselves, or or shoot other people. I mean, what, what, give me some examples of what you think could go wrong. Sure, it's kept in a locked drawer. Except one day the teacher doesn't lock the drawer, and some kid reaches in and grabs it. Trained agents have left their uh, service revolvers in the in the in the uh, restrooms at, during air air, fly, air travel. Things like they you know with, with those mutt. If you only have one school, one place, and you were supervising it from soup to nuts, yeah, maybe that would work. But you have how many thousands of schools, how many hundreds of thousands of children all across the country, and every single one of them are always pushing against authority every single day. I mean, talk to any teacher. They'll tell you that. Does the fact that we do have, in some states, um, teachers are armed, not all of them, but that this is, I mean, that we're not completely native on this. I mean, this there, there are states that have them. And does the fact that that isn't happening, or if, if it's ever happened, I'm not aware of it, does that mean that, does that indicate that maybe that's a concern that really isn't valid because we, if, if we've got sample size and it's not happening, why do we assume it's going to happen? I, do, you know, do you know a child? Were you a child yourself? Sure. That is just as simple as that. Okay. You know every darn day kids are pushing against the rules every way they can. And with just the fact that we have people intentionally shooting people, intentionally seeking out weapons, I'm not saying that the, that the kids that would do this would necessarily be, uh, have bad intent. Yeah. They could just be pulling a little, a little harmless prank. But that harmless prank could go horribly wrong. Okay, thanks for call. I mean, I guess I, my, my response to that would be, then again, let's let's look at the experience. And 
do we is has that turned out to be a valid concern? Now, I mean, I understand, for example, that, that's the same argument I guess you could make as if we have a we have a law enforcement officer. You have a you know you you have a school resource officer is there. I mean, are kids stealing you know their guns? Are they leaving them unattended? Is it something that is possible in theory? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's possible in theory, but if we live in the real world, is that something that's likely to happen? And by the way, I, I am sympathetic to the whole idea that. There's a lot of teachers who are going to want no part of this a- at all. I-, I get it. I don't think in any stretch of the imagination they should be forced to to do this. But at the same time, if we we, we trust teachers to make all these other sort of of decisions, um, you know, and if somebody's willing to do that, what, why shouldn't we allow them to do it? Okay, let's talk to Sandy and Eagle. Sandy, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Well, my stance, my stance is that I do not think teachers or school staff should be um, allowed to act as a safety person if the situation should arise, even if they have training in how to use a gun and they've shown because they're not trained enough, I wouldn't you know what the situation calls for emotionally. Well, I mean, thanks. I, how to react emotionally? Well, I mean, I, I mean, thanks for calling, Sandy. I mean, I, I understand. I guess you never know how you're going to react until you're actually in in that situation. So I guess that's that's fair. But you can make. You, you can make that argument about anybody who has a has a firearm. Okay, if if you're um, I don't know you're a concealed carry holder or you you've, let's say move away from that. You've got you've got a gun in your house for protection. Somebody breaks in at three o'clock in the morning. I guess in, until you've ever been in that situation, we don't we don't know how people are going to react to it. And it's, you can always yeah, that's why like I said at the start of this segment. I always think that the, the worst thing actually is to have a gun um, and not know how to use it when you need it or not be willing or not be prepared to use it. And, and, and you always get into those situations. But again, I would look at, I guess I would go back and point to, let's look at other states. Let's look at this experience. And do we have problems with examples of teachers who are misusing this? Do we have teachers who are sloppy with the guns or who are pulling out the guns and shooting in situations where it's, it's not called for? And I guess I, I'm not aware of anything. I'm not saying it's never happened, but I'm, I'm kind of not aware of that. 855-616-1620. I'm sorry, I'm kind of up against the clock. I apologize. Do you have phone lines on this? I, I think this is, again, just like I think there, there are some people who just oppose any sort of gun control regulation at all. And I think that you need to kind of move away from those absolutes. I, I think there's there's others approaches for people who say, oh, and one of our texters said, oh, more guns. What what could possibly go wrong? Well, um, you know, again, look at look at what happened in Texas yesterday, as uh, two days ago. It was awful, as horrible as it was, but there was a huge law enforcement response, and ultimately they ended up taking down the shooter. It would have been even worse, if that's possible to imagine, had th- there not been law enforcement presence there. That The shooting in Buffalo a couple weeks ago, um, at the grocery store, the, the guy who was the shooter, if law enforcement hadn't intervened, if there hadn't been people with firearms there who knew what they were doing, he, he would in all likelihood have gone down to the, the next 
drugstore or whatever, the next place, and continued shooting people. So th- this idea that, well, we, we can't let anybody have, have firearms, even if we put in qualifications so people know how to use them and are what we would describe as responsible people, the idea that, oh, no, heaven forbid, we can't let people have firearms, I, I think that you have to understand that you know firearms do play a role in being able to deter and defend others when they face armed attacks.